Welcome to Poet in Bangkok. I'm Colin Cheney. And I'm Donald Quist. Every episode, we hear the stories of poets, performers, illustrators, and painters. And Donald and I try to piece together a larger story about making art between the USA and Thailand under the threat of oppressive regimes, UFO signals, alien flowers, and the impending return of the crew of the Harbinger 2 astronauts from Mars. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview with two young Ethiopian Somali poets, Rakia and Ahmed Mohammed, recorded at Forage Market in Lewiston, Maine, shortly after President Trump's executive order banning travel from seven predominantly Muslim countries, including Somalia. The siblings, one in high school, the other in college, recount their experiences emigrating from Ethiopia and building a life in America. They reflect on how the poetic, playful nature of the Somali language and their discovery of Def Jam poetry and spoken word inspired them each to write. Ahmed recounts the experience of performing at spoken word competitions in New York City, and Rakia reflects on reconciling the many facets of her identity. And they reflect on how they understand the intersecting facets of their black, Muslim, immigrant, and American selves under a Trump presidency before each performing a poem for us. Nice. Yeah. If you didn't check out our previous episode, To Question Accepted Reality, episode 13, um, I shared my experiences uh, of repatriating with my family to Maine in the U.S. uh, from Thailand. And Donald, on this, our 14th episode, you are stateside now as well. So, yeah, I so am, uh, I am what's back what, in the USA. What's Woo. what's going on? It, it's not. Uh, I mean, I'm glad you're here. It's good to good to have more of the more of the good people here. But uh, but what's going on, man? What's um, tell the so, tell the people what's been happening. So I'm back um, in the USA, and it's not not necessarily for the best of circumstances circumstances are the best reasons but um my martian aphasia seems to have uh flared up a bit um so that sucks uh, dude yeah so i'm 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 starting to say things that sound like nonsense um so i've returned to the united states to work with the speech therapist that i was working with uh last summer uh, in 2016 hoping i can get a hold of this it it had it had been handled for a while. Um, it had basically gone away, right? It had basically gone away. And um, so I've taken a semester off um, from my university. Oh, really? Thailand. I didn't realize you'd actually like taken the whole, the whole yeah, semester I've, off. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to. That's intense, man. Yeah, and I'm working with intense sessions um, trying to control it. I'm also seeing online that it seems to be flaring up for a lot of people. Um in fact, um, really? there, there are forums all over the internet, and it seems like uh, this is becoming a problem for a lot of people, you know? Um, the mechanisms of social life and the painful slavery of both men and machines, you know? So it's just kind of it's just kind of difficult. Do you want me um, to tell you when you when you slip into it or just kind of let it let it go? Let it is it happening up. now? Yeah, it's happening now. I mean, why does she think it's it's come back? My therapist can't figure this out. Um, we're trying to see if it has something to do with some type of repressed memories I might have, or oh, geez, just trying man. to figure out what it is about this time that is bringing all this up again. Um, but I don't know. Being in America with this, 
<laughs> it's and I've I've come back to visit, but this is the first time I've I've spent this much consecutive time back home again. And, and you're and you're home in you're home in South Carolina, right? Yeah, I'm back I'm back in South Carolina um with my family and they're being super helpful. They're they're really helping me out with this because it makes it difficult to do things, like to go places. It's hard to meet up with old friends. It's hard to even go shopping and have interactions um, just because pe- I, I can, I start speaking um, the architects of Frost and then they look, I can see the person looking back at me and they just look completely confused and that's about the only cue I have that it's happening. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the died out in the blackness of felt hats. I can't really pick up on it um, unless someone is... How is your mom dealing with it? Is she... She's uh, she's been super super supportive. Um, I think she kind of thinks I'm I'm making this up for attention, um, but <laughs> it's not. <laughs> As I try to remind her, like this is not the type of attention I want. You know, I right. So yeah, it's it's super hard. But you know, I'm back in America at possibly one of the most fretful times to be back in america so that's compounding the anxiety um just being in a in a space where i already felt like i had trouble expressing myself with a condition that makes it hard to express myself it's kind of like in autumn soaking the final slopes you know so i I don't in autumn soaking the okay it's i mean the 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 thing about the aphasia right is it always it always has been like a beautiful sounding disorder like it makes sort sure. of nonsense beautiful <laughs> speech but it's huh. you know I, I choose not to to overly celebrate the uh, yeah, the thanks. beauty of your <clears throat> the beauty of your your disease there I, I appreciate but yeah man I mean like yeah that we both are no longer in the kingdom of Thailand and dealing with that particular regime and uh, <laughs> oh, are, yeah. are instead uh, you know Instead, here, yeah, my daughter, she like came home. What was she singing? She was singing this song the other day. She was, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. Is that a real song, or is that like a song that I don't, she and her, I, I don't, she and her I friends made up? But I was like, I, be, I talked yeah. to her about it. it I was like, I was like, I was like, oh, I don't really love like, don't really love you talking about you know talking about hating people, <laughs> and and she's she's like, no, it's just a song, and then like. A couple hours later, she was she sort of came up to me. I was working at the table, and she's like, "You know, like I don't really. I love everybody. I even oh. love, I even love Donald T. Oof. And I was like, I was like, ah, oh, complicated. You here. could, it's complicated. I was like, okay, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> okay, I love you. I hate you. <laughs> yeah. So, but I I can talk to her about the the. Do- Donald T. Donald T. But not uh, Donald Harbinger, T. Seems pretty... Harbinger, Harbinger too. But hey, how are you? How are you weathering all of all of that? Whether it's whether uh, it's Trump or whether it's the Harbinger, <laughs> the imminent Harbinger two return. I was just about to say, like uh, Donald T. Seems pretty excited about the return. He keeps. He uh, does. Yes, he does. He keeps trying to use it to deflect from like Russian ties. Um, it is a very convenient. Uh, if it wasn't, if we didn't, if it, if it like didn't predate him, you know, you'd think it was yeah. just something he was cooking up. But uh, no, right, like, exactly, you know, yeah. Uh, um, it's coming at a very convenient time, um, just with like his cabinet appointments and um, 
it's it's really i think kind of working out for him um i'm kind of wondering though like with his support of nasa and the excitement he seems to have for the harbinger missions if this isn't just like another you know like a another ploy to like increase nationalism like it it's yeah it's it's it isaac is a international organization but he keeps talking about like just how like this is almost like this was a win done entirely by the united states you know this was all only accomplished by the u.s and how other countries take advantage of us or don't appreciate like our contributions like we did the whole thing ourselves right um and (laughs) (laughs) it's it's Uh, you know it's yeah it's kind of insane, you know. I will let my hair grow with the limbless tree that cannot sing, you know. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess we just need to, um, you know, with all that is tired, deaf, mute, and butterfly drowned in the inkwell, um, just need to keep our eyes open, uh, be aware of strange rhetoric. Yeah, you know? no, completely. If something doesn't sound right, stumbling onto my face different every day murdered by the sky we need to pay attention yeah i mean i'm I'm catching i'm catching the sense of what you're saying around the aphasic poetry that is interceding but um i'm no we're gonna keep it in because it's what's happening to you man it's it's real it's what's going on it just makes me want to silence myself you know like yeah uh, yeah you can't do that you can, but in your, and, but, you know, it doesn't happen when you're writing, right? So you can, you hope you're no. writing and making sure that, yeah. you know, uh, but it must, it I'm must trying. be weird to have that happening at a time when, you know, when there's so many people urging. Yeah. Well, I don't know to have it happening at a time when it's so important to be raising your voice. And you know, I mean, you know, I, I hope you're leaving long messages with your senators, you know, including aphasia. Remarks. Yeah, yeah. My eyes are on the pony's neck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna sure. be able. To, I'm not gonna be able to keep all of these coughs off the, off the recording. You know, it's the truth. These coughs are are real. Yeah, you've got your you've got your illness. I've got mine. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Um, We're partners in this. Yeah. I want to jump into the the uh, interview here again. I wish that you were able to to be there for it because you would have really enjoyed sitting with uh, Rakia and Ahmed. But I did just want to pause to to reflect. And I'm just curious. I mean, you you've only been here uh, what like a week now, two weeks now. I, I just wanted to reflect on how far away Thailand feels right now. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> it just it feels a different world. It feels like a different world in in a way that like I'm sort of ashamed to admit. I didn't think it would it would it would feel so far away so quickly i, I don't know I've, i guess i felt like i was gonna carry more of it with me uh, f- for longer i don't mean to be overly dramatic in in saying that and you know i still you know i still love you know seeing the po- posts about degaruda's shows that dino's posting and getting yeah. psalms emails about the openings at the wtf gallery but um but it but it seems far away and you know, not just because there's two feet of snow on the ground here and there are not two feet of snow on the ground in Thailand. But I think part of it is just how the the, the Trump presidency is so utterly bewildering and frightening. Um, and it's and the level of dysfunction seems 
you know, sort of almost almost unbelievable, you know, in the in the way that occasionally the dysfunction and uh, doublespeak uh, in 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 Thailand made Thailand sometimes seem like a surreal, uh, unreal place in certain ways because the you know the reality of what was actually going on and then the reality of the surfaces of the what people were accepting or talking about but there's something about trump's absurdities and the absurdities <laughs> of of the the gop but particularly trump's absurdities you know his foolish ignorant tweets and the the frightening but again absurd and and often surreal encounters with with foreign leaders you know those crazy handshakes um you know they, they outclass you know the most outlandish pronouncements of general prayut the prime minister yeah. of thailand you know like yeah and make prayut honestly seem like a super competent <laughs> super strategic super aware person which for any uh, listeners who are in Thailand will probably they know it's true. They know, know that is true. They know that they know that is true. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's just like Thailand to the nth degree in a way. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. So I just I don't know. I just wanted to share that in terms of that that just because we we have been wanting to talk about the the differences a little bit and mm. <clears throat> you know the shared surreality of moving from uh, from one uh, oppressive regime to another. I've seen how things that that seek their way find their void instead i'm almost longing for for thailand you know in under these under these uh current circumstances in the u.s like um my my wife sends me pictures of like uh the buckruck in in thailand are like blooming and uh they're causing even more problems like cars are crashing and um i get reports that like uh the the military has spent like 85% of Thailand's surplus, um, their reserves. Right. That was um, an amazing report. Yeah. 85%. And I'm thinking that's so cute. And here I'm, I'm worrying about, I don't, it's not even worrying about it's happening. Like here we're seeing raids, you know, from the ICE on people's lives. Um, you know, uh, friends of friends, vanishing in the night <laughs> but on a on a much larger scale you know it's kind of strange uh that you could travel to the other side of the earth and one place can remind you so much of another in so many terrifying ways so let's get into it you're about to hear an interview with rakia and ahmed um two young poets that are living during a very interesting time in the United States. Cullen met Rakia and Ahmed at a Maine Immigration Unity Rally at the Franco Center in the city of Lewiston. The rally, organized by Maine People's Alliance, featured speakers from the ACLU and local government, but also several young poets, including Rakia and Ahmed. One of the very cool things about this interview, and I'm, I'm very jealous that Colin got the chance to talk to them and I didn't, is that it mirrors so much of the feeling, um, so many of the emotions that Colin and I had while we were living in Thailand, um, feelings of uncertainty, um, and using poetry and writing and art to find a way to navigate systems that seem 
strange and <laughs> indecipherable. Um, they discuss race, they discuss politics, they discuss um, intersectionality and identity and globalization and finding out who you are during a time of great uncertainty. Without further ado, here's Rakia and Ahmed. Where are we right now? So right now we're in Forage Market. We're in Lewiston, Maine, right across from Auburn, Maine, which is where we're from. Twin Cities, they call it. Yeah. So tell me about how your family originally came to the country. Did you guys grow up in Ethiopia? Um, So we were in a small town called Jijiga. It's eastern Ethiopia. Tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, About seven hours from the capital, which is Addis. Um, That's where our family, most of our family lives currently. and so it was a very rural town. I'm talking like no streets, really, just the roads were rocky. Um, we lived in a huge, all the houses are gated. They're not really like a house, so it's like a huge old gate. So our house was big, but it was a, just a bunch of rooms in a gate that was blue. And so, uh, yeah, that, and then for miles, and then another house, and then for a couple of miles, and then another house, so things like that. My mom and I came in 02, and she, and I came by ourselves uh, to see, you know, how we can kind of figure out to have a family in like better situations, stuff like that. She came for, she was working with an organization called Save the Children. We stuck around New York, uh, Washington, mostly with the organization. By the time the tour was done is when she kind of was like, uh, you know, I think, I think I'm gonna try to make a living here. And so she made a formal departure from the organization and um, we moved to Maine because so my mom is, we're ethnically Somali. My mom's from, she's not from, she's, she's Somali. We're all born in Ethiopia though. Um, and Somali people, we have a way of finding each other always. So she had heard that um, a lot of people are coming to Lewiston, Maine. And so her and I kind of hitched a ride with some, some Somali folks and um, came to Lewiston. And I mean, my earliest memories of Lewiston look nothing like it is today. A lot of the buildings were kind of abandoned, nothing all the thriving parts of the town that you see today definitely built up since 2003. Um, So long story short, my mom really tried uh, working hard. She finished her GED, um, went to college, um, and and then got her master's. And in the process of all that, trying really hard to get my brothers here. So how old were you you when you moved here? Me and my brother came here in 2005. You know, we're this, this new environment and this whole new world and we're just you know in awe we spoke zero English so <laughs> by then my mom had remarried uh, to our stepdad but he's my dad um, and she had remarried and in 2004 she had Ridwan who's 12 2005 she had Bashir who's 11 and then um, she had two other two, the two little girls Serene and Sahin and so then kind of just grew and uh, yeah, that's we've just like planted our feet firmly in Auburn, Maine since then. Yeah. I was just doing a little research on on uh, on art and writing in East Africa, and, and I kept coming across people referring to Somalia as a nation of poets. Yeah. I've always, you know, heard that, and even our culture is very. It's, it's like you always want to get how you feel out, you know, your feelings out in different ways. You know, people have music, but I think a really big thing to Somalis is poetry you know and it was more of a 
you know, like a get things off your chest type of thing. It's interesting where Somali people, the way, the, so we call it gabe, right? Gabe is, means poetry in Somali. They do it in a fashion that's uh, almost to a beat, but there's really not a beat behind what they're saying. It's like this, this rhythm that they pick up with the words. Is there a way you could, you could demonstrate what that sounds like? Yeah, so like there are some songs that they would make like Hoba, la ye hobe. And it's like they're not really words, but um, they would play with the sound. And what would happen that Hoba, la ye hobe would be the bridge or like the chorus. And then they would go into some admiring verse. And that often happens at weddings. And so um, at weddings we go, we have Burambur, which is a circle that you create with a drum. And it's all women and they're beating on that drum and they're making a beat. They would just start with like admiring the bride, right? Saying like, we bless you, we hope you have this type of marriage, this and that. And then afterwards, they will start beating the drum like very heavy and someone from the circle will pop into the middle and they will start jumping. Like jumping in a fashion. Like just, it's so beautiful. I have to show you a video after this. It's so cool. And they start jumping in the fashion and like that was like, that, 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 that's a form of it, right? The very interesting thing about the nation of poets is that Somali people, we don't write much. Like the, the art of writing actually came about in the 60s, 1960s. Everything was oral. So you can imagine how very valuable words were in passing down stories, tradition, lessons, because every story has a lesson with it. An entire history was passed down orally. It was the only way to get your, not only what you're feeling across, but like to transfer information, not, I'm talking generationally, right? Like the way we talk, I mean, it's kind of harsh, not as harsh as like German, but like kind of harsh when we talk. It's always rhyming. It's like this naturally poetic language that, that's just like in our house. And we're just speaking like, how are you type, <laughs> you know? But it sounds like, whoa, like, wow. And so, yeah, it's, it's very fun. Do you feel like you grew up or at some point you kind of got a sense that there really is a line between like what is poetry in Somali culture and then what's just language, if you, if you understand what I mean? I mean, I feel like I don't think there's really a, like a huge difference. I think they're kind of intertwined, you know, rather than, you know, drawing that line between, you know, saying that poetry is just completely something else. It's, and I don't know if it was just our family or, you know, or just, you know, the whole culture, but that's definitely how it was at our household. Our household. And, you know, and now that I've come to America, I've seen in the English language, I've seen that the difference there, you know, there's the regular, you know, everyday language speaking and then there's poetry, you know? Yeah, I think um, the biggest way you can tell whether something is poetry or, or just everyday language in Somali is performance. So um, that's one of the biggest things is that if, if somebody were to, like I said, get up and kind of add a rhythm to what they're saying, or performing it in front of people, even though they're saying the same, the regular words, right? If you get up there and you say, in a, you say it in a, in this rhythm that um, kind of has a catch to it or gets just, get, catches people's attention, I think that's what I, makes it poetry. And then when you do it in spaces like weddings or you know reading of like religious settings, stuff like that, that's when it becomes poetic. Which is I think the type of poetry that we're kind of into and that we've delved into on an American level is like slam poems. And spoken word I mean on paper is it's different right but when you perform it I think my words come alive when I when I give them feelings when I add the harshness to it when I add the softness to it and that really truly I think comes from Somali poetry 
you know that and that's the process I saw I mean when, when we were kids I, I would show them like Def Jam poetry all the time like come watch this come watch this and then like we'd watch it and we'd just like watch how they would like formulate their words and on paper when you write and I would like transcribe all their words when you write it down sometimes they rhyme sometimes they don't Sometimes it looks like a story unless it's in poetry format. But what was key and very attractive to me was the fact that like the, the performance of it. That's why I like we're scared to have some people like read our poems. I'm like, can I say it to you? Can I read it? Can I read it for you instead of you reading it yourself? Do you remember a particular poet, a particular performer that when you saw or heard their stuff being like, oh yeah, that's kinda like something clicked and kinda made you wanna like make something like that or or perform that? I didn't get into poetry till my, you know, freshman year in high school, and or my sophomore year in high school. I took a poetry class, you know, and then we started watching all these videos, and you know, and I really got into it. And then there was a, a level of familiarity, you know, and I was like, I, I loved watching those performances, and every single one for some reason just spoke to me, you know. And I don't, when it, when I think of poetry, I don't. Usually, I, the words is a big part of it, but I love the performance, you know, that performance part of the poetry, I think, brings the poem to life, you know. And we watched, I remember one time we watched this film, uh, I think it was, it was, took place in the Bronx, and it was about this poetry group, of these, you know, these kids at high schools in the Bronx, and all this, you know, the stuff they go through, and finally, this teacher there, you know, she witnessed what was going on with these kids, you know. And she introduced them to poetry and to get their words out on paper and just to write about what they're going through, you know. I think it was definitely um, that movie that really spoke to me, you know, seeing that, like, when you looked at these, like, I don't want to be, you know, just these kids, they were just normal kids, you know. And to go and just, you know, go on to paper and the stuff they wrote was just so moving. Is just very inspirational, and I was like, "That's that's what I want to do." You know, that's that's if I were to do anything in this poetry class, I want to do that. First poem I wrote was about my dad, and how he wasn't uh, part of the family, and how you know he left us when we, I was very young. I don't, I was like two or something when he left, but how we left, we just left, you know, and how we've come here and we've thrived without him and we're doing good and mom has you know she's got a master's and she got a job and we're we're going to college and high school and we're just you know doing better than ever that was you know and I started writing poems personally and then I started watching um, like TED talks you know and looking at problems you know and then that's where I really got the inspiration of you know and it was me and Rakia wrote the lazy boy poem and that's, you know, I feel like, you know, the school, that's what I was about, the school system. And I feel like that's what I wanted to address first. I watched a lot of Def Jam poetry growing up. One of my favorites is Woman to Woman by Thea Monet. I wasn't inspired to write until I watched this one called Knock Knock by Daniel Beattie. It, like, it was one of those poems where it started off, like, very subtle. And it just built energy. And by the end of the poem, like, I was crying by the end of the video. And he was talking about his father. Um, I took that as a template, okay, you know, I can put feelings into this, like very angry feelings. And I wrote about my father, and I remember I had like a little Tumblr page, and I put it up on Tumblr. And two years later, this kid doesn't even tell us that he's a poet, right? He just goes to my mom one spring day, goes, hey, uh, I'm going to New York for a poetry contest. 
no, actually, can I go to New York? Because we can't tell mom anything. We have to ask her. <laughs> we always have to ask. He goes, can I go to New York for a poetry contest? And, she, and all of us just stopped like on scene. Like, excuse us? He's like, yeah, um, a teacher that's uh, Miss Highland. She's like, yeah, we're, we're doing this for a class. And I don't know, I guess we got invited, right? Very like downplaying it to the max. Let me tell you. Then he goes, he comes back. He doesn't tell us. Miss Highland congratulates him in front of us. Like, what are you congratulating for? He gets first place, or was it second place? Second place, his first time going to this slam poetry contest in New York. We're all in awe. Like, oh my God, Ahmed can write. Because Ahmed's very chill. He's like a laid back kid. You don't ever see him angry too often. And if you do, it's very short limited. So I was intrigued. I was like, what did you write about? He was like, nothing. And I said, what did you, and so we actually had to push it out of him. And it wasn't until the summer, I'm telling you, that I found the video of him performing because his teacher recorded it. And I was like, he wrote about our dad too. Like that was the biggest, the coolest thing I think is because that we both channeled it in into something very personal. And a feeling that like after that we were able to talk about things, you know, because our biological father is like very much out of the picture. So the fact that we really like don't ever have a, the time or even the conscious to, to deal to talk about it um, because it's just been an entity that's missing so that really that that point where I found out oh my god you wrote about him too like let's sit down let's talk about what we wrote it was very similar let me tell you um, and so that was like the first time I, it opened up like our whole relationship and like in that he wasn't just like my kid brother anymore like he was becoming like a young man and you know he had issues that he wanted to talk about and so like him uh, him my other brother Mohammed between us so we come from the same father so all of us like that opened a very big conversation that you know we didn't even realize we had we had to have right um, Rikia mentioned the performance you did in New York City or now twice is that right we got invited to New York for uh, three days to compete in this competition in the Bronx at Lehman College so we went there and I was very nervous and we went to the auditorium and it, they said it could hold 500 people and I was, I don't even know what 500 people looks like. So um, we went there and people started coming in and it was mostly, you know, students, uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers. We had a little bit of, you know, elementary kids too, doing poetry and all these people started coming in and, you know, I started getting nervous and... Ms. Hyland was just like, just keep cool, you have a wonderful poem, you're going to do it. So before that competition started, we went into a back room, and I think there were a total of maybe like 15 to maybe 20 kids from, you know, around, you know, the United States coming together. So we went out and we did our pieces, and Kadro Adao, she was a fellow student of mine, she placed first place. I got second, and then another student from, uh, I think he was from in New, somewhere in New York, uh, he placed third. So that was the first year, and then um, very happy. Uh, I was extremely surprised that I <laughs> came second, but because um, they were wonderful pieces. And then we got invited again the second year, and then we went back, and this year, um, I had a couple of poems, but I think Lazy Boy was, you know, my strongest piece, so I took Lazy Boy there. Um, I, out of my, I don't know how it happened, but I placed first, and then Kadro came second, and then we had another, uh, this other uh, girl who placed third, and it was just, oh my god, and I was so nervous, and, <laughs> but it was a wonderful experience, and 
very proud of <laughs> placing first place. Um, do you want to perform your your poem? What do you you want? You want to go for it? All right. My poem's called Lazy Boy. I slowly drag my feet to class. Lazy boy. Too tired to pay attention to what nuances mean. Lazy boy. Homework left unanswered again. Lazy boy. Skipping another tutor session. Lazy boy. College applications left unfinished. Lazy boy. Struggling to get through another day. You don't see my life outside's eight hour school day, yet you come to conclusions anyway. You don't know where the six other siblings that need me. The laughter and chaos of kids chasing each other, letting me know it's time to wake up. Time to be responsible. Mom can't drive. I'm the taxi cab. Each morning I wait for a schedule of the day to dictate where I will be and when. No time to be a kid, but it's alright. I gotta do what I gotta do. Lazy boy, you call me into the office. You sit me down in interrogation as if I'm the perpetrator. The walls start to close in I feel as if I'm back into a corner Sweat starts to drip by my back Questions coming at me Akmahara, how are you doing? You ask as if you care When you can't even say my name Akmahara, are you taking school seriously? Not knowing the time I spent And the hours I put in trying to juggle life and school Akmahara, have you thought about your future? As if I don't stay awake at night thinking about occupation, destination, designation Wondering if I have the knowledge it takes to get there Because see, to you, I'm just a lazy boy My sister once told me it's the other way around Not lazy boy, but lazy system Dragging its feet to implement change Lazy system Desks arranged in rows like a one-room schoolhouse Lazy system Giving out grades based on favorites Lazy system Implement, Implementing requirements without implementing change Lazy system Teachers unable to do what is right Lazy system Student pleas and proposals to finish again Lazy system Teachers not teaching letting us learn off someone else's hard work But Lord knows we can't cheat Lazy system a lazy system that wants to call me lazy boy because it's easier to do so than to actually make change. Lazy system, are you taking school seriously? Lazy system, have you thought about your future? Lazy system, do you think you have what it takes to make the change? Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that is, <clears throat> that's a really cool poem. Do you feel like people either Somali or Ethiopian Somali friends get it more than white American friends like in other words it's because of that background that you're talking about where it's just more of a natural part of the culture it's like oh yeah I get that rather than like oh like that's weird like that you'd be that you'd be focusing on that um, I think the Somali people who most understand this our topics and what we write about and the fact that we do poetry um, are the other Somali kids our age um, or older than us uh, people who have lived in this hybrid of knowing both cultures and kind of swimming between back and forth between them um, I think it's when it comes to the Somali people poetry is uh, and by P Somali I mean older generations uh, parents grandparents stuff like that it's it was the, the reason why poetry exists um, I think in in American culture, I guess spoken word exists is to 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 get some urgency out there, right? To to create some awareness of something. Um, and I don't know if I don't know if Somali poetry was intended to do that, right? I don't think it had the purpose of revolutionary sense. 
um, aspect to it. I think even the performers, it was more love poetry. It was more comedic relief, um, very performative, but not in the sense of uni- I mean, maybe they did understand the fact that it's uniting so many people. So the biggest support I've gotten was, I mean, I didn't start performing anything that I've ever written until college. Um, and that was because my best friends at college right now, they kind of saw me uh, practicing and they were like, whoa, hey, <laughs> we should go like do an open mic night thing and you should go, right? And in all honesty, there isn't a hub for Somali people to go and to be poets in a creative in an intentional way of getting your feelings out for a purpose, right? So at that rally, it was our, it was my first time performing in front of a most, mostly Somali crowd. The only Somali people that I've ever performed in front of are my peers. Yes, you mentioned the the, the rally where we met. Could you say a little bit about what what the rally was and and how you how you guys uh, came to be involved in it? It was a gathering for people to come together to address that you know there's immigrants here and that they're here to stay. Yeah, um, I was contacted by my good friend Emily Manter. She is very involved with the Maine People Alliance. She contacted me. She knows I'm very active on campus, um, very opinionated. And so she was like, hey, um, do you remember? She actually said this in a text. She said, do you remember that poem you performed freshman year about the immigrant girl who came? And I was like, girl, I haven't performed that in two years. What? She's like, could you perform that? I was like, wow let me find it and like I had to go through my Google Docs and like find it and you know when I went there honestly I was not expecting that many people I don't think a lot I think a lot of people were surprised by the amount of support um, and presence that was there personally I was like relieved a little bit because um, you, you kind of get wrapped up especially me you, you spend hours on social media you spend hours reading the news and um, when you feel like your identity is constantly being attacked, you just feel more and more isolated. And you forget that, hey, there are people feeling this way too. And on top of that, there are people who don't identify as this that can support you. I think that was the overall takeaway for me, is that I went home that day knowing, hey, like, not all of Lewiston, Maine, you know, who aren't uh, Muslims or immigrants, like, hate me. Um, and that's, that's something that is kind of overlooked, is like the amount of support that you have from natives of this town. It was cute to like perform with you guys and my brother and like I know Khadra too, the girl that um, also came and Muna, like Muna and I go way back and all of us are just like look at like this is, this is like a weird place I'm like what? Like we used to go to the mosque on Saturdays and Sundays and joke around with each other and like gone through elementary and middle and high school and it was just like a very much like a look around and like okay like we're adults right and we are now in a position where we can actually drive some change because we understand this real world that everyone has been telling us right exists. So it was like a, it was just like a very humbling experience, I think. I think we need to hear a poem. How, how are you feeling? So I'm going to do a poem uh, called Advice to the Seven-Year-Old Fresh Off the Boat. One, you will never get used to the snow. Everywhere, every year, you'll want to head back to the motherland and stay there for a good six months because no matter how hard you try to bundle up, the cold will just creep through your sleeves and freeze your whole body for a second. Two, that weird yellow gooey thing, yeah, those are American eggs. Tastes nasty, right? Everything here will look and taste different, even your traditional foods, but don't worry, your tongue will adapt to the processed foods injected with chemicals and GMO. And get this. 
You'll even like some of them. Like mac and cheese? Oh, one day you'll have your cupboards stacked with mac and cheese. Three, your clothes will get you a lot of attention. Sometimes attention you don't want. You'll even be made fun of because of them. But you keep wearing those bright orange dresses, girl, because trust me, those people are low-key angry that they aren't as confident or as cultured as you in your fabulous dresses. Four, speaking of culture, I'll be damned if you lose yours. You can't let this American society strip you of your roots. When they laugh at your accent, remind them that you're onto your third language while they're still struggling with their native tongue. They're given lessons on figuring out what the difference between their, their, and their is. Meanwhile, you've managed to learn English orally. Through observation, letting your ears and your eyes be your teachers, conversations between your mother and aunts be the lesson, and the true test being able to articulate why you deserve to come to this country to the immigration officer. Don't shy away from expressing what's on your mind. Even though it might not sound as smooth as when they speak, it is not any less important. Five, go back home sometimes. You know, being a foreigner is actually pretty valued here, if you want to be a hipster. If there's a problem going home, going on at home, challenge yourself to come up with a solution. You came here and you take you take the time to learn about your country, learn its strengths, its weaknesses. Do whatever you can to educate yourself because you'll often find yourself representing your country more often than not. Six, you're probably regretting coming here after all I've told, so let me leave you with this. You came here with your family to start fresh. You came here to let your mind blossom and explore your, your possibilities. You came here because in America, you're at least given the chance to live long enough to have a future. So live. Every day, live your life to its full capacity. Have passion in whatever you do. Remember to love yourself, even when this country tells you you're too dark, too curvy, too African, whatever that means. Self-love is a concept that is ripped from our souls at a very young age, so guard yourself. Try new things. Except maybe don't try bringing an American guy home to your, your parents. It's not a great idea. Sincerely, the 21-year-old, still fresh off the boat. All right, thank you so much. That's such a wonderful poem. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about, how did you put it exactly? It was like the, the real world that you now understand, right? Can you talk a little bit about the aspect of that real world? Because it's all real life, right? But can you talk about like how you've experienced wider acceptance into American population, into into the the, the community of, of Lewiston, Maine, and also where you've either explicitly or implicitly been told you don't belong. I don't think. I mean, I do have friends who have you know experienced you know some you know hate from uh, you know fellow classmates or you know even teachers, but um, I personally haven't been through that so. Personally, I haven't been through this hatred that is going on in this country, and I see that, and I get most of my things, you know, from social media, and I see all this going on, and I feel like, you know, being, you know, black or being Muslim or, you know, being Somali, an immigrant, you know, that these are my people being attacked, and I'm with them, you know, so I, I personally haven't been through those, but I feel, you know, what they're going through in some type of way. And I always, you know, side, you know, I have to, you know, side with my people. How has it been for you? I think um, in Auburn especially, Lewiston is very different. I think Lewiston High School, you'll get 
several stories that of just blatant attacks, right, of people's identities, whether it be the girl's clothes or the guy's opinions or anything, whether it's like directly to you or walking around with a Confederate flag in school. I think there are ways that you'll definitely hear. So like we're living in a moment right now with a new president. How are you feeling in, in, the, in the context of either the Trump presidency in general and what that sort of reveals about a certain part of America that has been already, that has always been there or, is, or has been developing um, and then particularly about this the particular ban and what that has what's that what that's signaling or what that means pragmatically how are you doing on that I myself came here as an immigrant you know you know and looking for something better and for a better life and to you know take that away from somebody you know and that opportunity of what you know they can do and what they can become I feel is just you know it's unhumane and that's just bad and to see that you know when he was going into the presidency I didn't I I, I was hearing what he was saying but I didn't think he was you know this is you know he can't you can't block you know people from coming in you know from America you know this is the land of the free and home of the brave and and to see Trump you know Somebody who I knew before, you know, I, I would never imagine Donald Trump as president, but someone who I knew was, you know, just a celebrity to take, you know, the, the, the highest power, you know, to, you know, with such power and what he chooses to do with that power is just it's scary, you know, and to see that if this is what he's starting with, to see, seeing like what is to come and if he, if you know, this I always have this what if, what if he just, you know, just not just blocking people from coming in, but what if he starts to send people out and starts getting rid of people and immigrants and it just and it scares me, you know, and I and I'm a citizen here, but what about the people who aren't and there's you know, there's this long process of being here for five years and you know, and just you know, it takes a long time to become a citizen and some people don't get the opportunity to become one because they're being forced out. So it's just scary. I'm angry. I'm sad. It's just it's a mixture of emotions. I mean, and I can't help even though you guys have, have come from Ethiopia, which is not on the list. Somalia, Somalia is. Um, so, yeah. Okay, what are, you th- what are you thinking about? Yeah, I think the first thought I had was um, just what this meant for every Somali immigrant in this community whether they are citizens or not because like he like Ahmed said the citizen process citizenship process is is, is hard right um, to become a citizen and to learn all the history of this country as an adult we had the you know the the privilege of learning it through schooling and taking it year by year to understand what this country is but to be a, an adult and understand what the stars and the stripes mean on the flag and when you know the star spangled banner was written that has no context to an immigrant, honestly, no matter how long they're here for. Um, so that patriot, that patriotism that is expected of a citizen in such a short period of time, I think, is kind of weird on its own. And then on top of that, to put a a ban on a country that so many people in this community. First, I like to say that none of those seven countries, if I'm correct, um, produced. The, the terrorism that people are fearing or Donald Trump claims is going to stop. Um, if anything, the countries that have produced it aren't ever going to see a ban because of the, the relationship with America. 
So that fact being out there lets me know that this isn't even a well-intended ban, right? And then to just make it personal and to think like, yes, we were born in Ethiopia, but Somalia has always been on our radar in terms of where to go and home. To know that we, we might not go there because of the possibility of us being detained for hours because we're being reviewed and you know, all of these technicalities that just even make it that much harder to travel as a citizen is, is heartbreaking. And my mom, you know, we work, my mom owns a mental health agency, her and my dad. And to think about all those immigrants that we're helping and the, all the, the people that, yes, Somalia is war ridden, but that's still your home. You still claim it. You still love your flag and your, your native land. And to know that, hey, even when you become a citizen, the, the chances of you going there and coming back without fear is slim to none now. Um, because what, what that ban initially just essentially did is just like point fingers at people and said, if, if you were home right now, like if you were back home, we would never accept you. And the fact that you're here is questionable. So that, that hurts me like deeply. Can you, like it's hard to just imagine you leaving your home because you want to. Like why would anyone just say, I'm gonna go to a new country, leave my current job that I have a very high position in, by the way, and go to another place and start over and struggle completely. Like no one would actually choose to do that, right? I look at it like, you know, think of it rather than someone coming here just to be here and like, you know, feed off of whatever and that rhetoric. And I'd like to spin it to, right, you're, just look at the, the position that these folks are in to actually have to come here, not speak this language. And then on top of that, in a year, they must find a job, find a home, and register their children for school. Meanwhile, they don't know what any of those systems are, right? And so I just, it hurts me to see that there's like a lack of empathy there because um, I'm often like, put yourself in those shoes. Anybody's situation, I'm like, just put yourself in those shoes. We got mad when a lot of people got mad when Donald Trump said he was running for president and complained, oh, we're moving out of here if he becomes president. And I said, isn't it funny how we've moved because we want to when somebody got elected president, right? Can you imagine like having to be forced to move, right? So there's a lot of understanding that's like not kind of reaching people. And I think it's that because of that empathy is kind of missing. It's like just just feel for that person for a second, right? Just to kind of understand what they're going through. You each in your own way talked about the different communities or the different identities that you feel connected to. Uh, Somali, Ethiopian, Somali, Ethiopian, uh, black, African. When I was in Thailand and I was looking back at the US, it was, there had been an escalation of violence against people of color uh, in the US. And that has always been part of American history, obviously, um, but it was getting, it seemed to be getting to another moment of getting worse. And then that was happening at the same time where this bubbling uh, anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment was coming to a fore and now that's gotten kind of realized in the form of Donald Trump. I find it just amazing that young people like yourselves are bearing the, the brunt of all of that and carrying all of that as as Americans who identify in all those different ways and connect all those different communities. Um, uh, how, I don't know, I guess I guess we'll just want to ask, how do you do it? <laughs> how, do you, how do you keep yourself positive? How do you keep yourself engaged? How do you uh, protect your sense of self and, and while also kind of keeping, you know, keeping aware of what's going on out there in the world? 
my teacher, Miss Highland, she always told me, she said, uh, she used to say, if you don't, you know, tell your story, then who will, you know? If you're not the one to, you know, to stand up and say, you know, what is going on or, you know, to address these problems that, you know, everybody sees but is afraid to, you know, to say, then you're just, you're going to go on and you're going to keep, you know, keep having these problems with no solutions, you know? I feel like, you know, it's now it's my job, you know, that I have to, because if nobody says anything, then, then this is just going to keep happening. I don't like to think of it this way, but when you look at it on a large scale, um, in terms of a hierarchy, um, being a black woman who's also a Muslim, who's also an immigrant, it's not pretty high up there, right, in that it's kind of like you're pretty low on the, on the ladder of acceptance. And your question of like, how do you do it? I feel like I remember one day I was so tired and I, I felt defeated. And I was like, I, sometimes when I, def, when I feel defeated on a Muslim sense, I can channel in my blackness and I feel empowerment through that. And, and then, you know, vice versa. And I kind of kind of just transition between all of my identities. But there are moments when you feel like you're just shot down from every aspect. Um, so it's almost like waking up and you're like, all right, which part of me am I going to fight for today? Right. And that's not something I consciously get up and do, but that's a feeling I've realized that I arm myself, like not in a physical sense, but like mentally I get myself ready to take on whatever stuff comes my way. Um, and like Ahmed said, I haven't been personally like in the middle of a situation where at least in, in terms of against authority that I felt I was being tried or that I was kind of being questioned. Um, but the scary part of it all is how easily I feel like it can become me next, right? Uh, Muhammad, I wish he was here to tell this story, but the other day he went into the gas station, um, Cumberland Farms. He goes in there and him and his friends, it's like, it's like 2 a.m. or something. They just came out of the movies and they're getting snacks. And they go in and he walked in there. He had his hood on. He had three other guys with him walked in there and he gets up to the register and he pulls out his card and the woman in the register tells him she's like take off your hoodie or you're not buying anything and he was like and Muhammad is the least confrontational person in our family he is so sweet it's actually it's annoying sometimes like he's like the most people pleaser you'll ever see he hates making people uncomfortable even if it makes him uncomfortable so for him for that to happen to him was like a shock right he goes he goes, but wait, no. He's like, I have money. I'm paying for it. Like, and she was like, either take off the hoodie, or you can't pay. And he goes, why? He was so he was truly confused. He was like, you know, and he and that and he, in that moment he told me he was like, I channeled you. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> he goes, and he left. He was like, you're really not gonna accept my money. She goes, I don't know what type of threat you pose. He's like. I'm right, I'm like, he's like, the cameras are right there. I see them right behind you, you know? I'm paying, and he was just utterly shocked because I think it was any of us, that was the first time that someone in our immediate family was treated that way, right? And he just, he got up and he told his friends we're leaving because that was disrespectful, right? In that moment, she just respected him by putting a stereotype right onto him, even though she saw his card and he was willing to pay. And he tried to talk to her, you know? Um, so it was things like that. I was like, you never know 
when it can be you. And that's not to sound pessimistic, but that's to sound realistic, is that nobody that has been a headline has thought they were going to be a headline. And that's the harsh reality that we deal with. So it's just like um, caring for yourself. And just because you obey authority and then they're disrespecting you and you still obey them, that doesn't mean you're being a coward. That means you're actually caring about yourself at that given moment. We don't mean to be, but we're uber calculative and like just super aware of you know when it is time to act and when it isn't. So my last question is my my uh, podcasting partner Donald Quist is not here, uh, but he he really wanted to talk to you guys. <laughs> um, one of the questions he wanted to make sure I asked you was because he and I have been thinking about what it is to to make a decision to, to speak to speak out, and we were thinking about that first within the context of Thailand and in a, a place where there are many ways in which people feel censored and feel like they, they can't speak or they shouldn't speak or it's dangerous to speak because they might go to jail um, or they might be physically harmed. But also now, you know, because we're both part of communities of writers here in the U.S. and there's a lot of talk among poets and, and writers here about sort of that, that, we, that we, have to, we have to speak and we have to write and that writing is, is, a, is a really essential form of, of resistance right now. Do you feel that same sense of urgency in terms of, of, of speaking out, whether it's, whether it's in the form of poetry or whether it's just talking to people? How do you feel like that, that or do you feel like that can, can make things better? Do you feel like that can have a positive, a positive impact? Well, before, you know, poetry and all this, I was very quiet and I kept things to myself. And I felt like that was the best way, you know, if nobody knows what I'm thinking, then, you know, it's okay. But, you know, once I got into poetry, and even in the beginning of poetry, I never wanted, you know, you know, just in problems and coming up with solutions. That wasn't, you know, but I was like, I was, you know, always scared to, you know, to see what people would think about me, you know, and just kept that to myself. And, and I feel like, you know, addressing problems, things like, you know, racism and, you know, you can get a lot of heat from that. But also, if, you know, if you address it in a right way, it could actually make a difference, you know, and that's, I feel like I am willing to take that risk that there's a chance of me making a difference and, you know, and taking the heat rather than me just keeping those things to myself and just letting this problem continue. How about you? How do you, how do you think about that? I feel the same way. Um, I think that expressing how you're being wronged, especially when people don't know that they're wronging you, is the first step into any conversation. Um, I'm also a firm believer in that conversation alone doesn't do much. My professor has brought up the point the other day that yeah, he told me about how his father 50 years ago when like times were way worse than this but still pretty parallel to this uh, to these times. Yeah, he would also hear a lot of people say we need just we need to have a conversation. We need to have talk. We need to you know, sit in a table and, and express our differences. And, you know, he's like, it's interesting that there's still that rhetoric kind of going around today. And it's, it's because a lot of change has come about from conversation. It's very true. But I also think that conversation was accompanied by some sort of action. I'd like to think that, you know, getting up and performing in front of people and creatively expressing how you are wronged or how you're feeling is a, is a form of action in of itself because the point of there is to create awareness um, and then what they do with that new awareness or you know rep repeated awareness I guess is up to each person but I think my goal every time I get up and I perform a piece is to 
will have first have people understand that hey I'm feeling things right just because I'm labeled all these things doesn't mean I'm not a human above anything else um, so I have feelings and then be recognize my feelings like please <laughs> because growing up as an other you're always considerate of everyone else's feelings you are always the one who doesn't want to make people uncomfortable right it's like uh, I don't I don't I don't want to pose a threat so I'll smile at everyone's face because I don't want them to think I am a threat or having your hood off all the time to make sure other people don't feel uncomfortable things like that so I feel like it's our responsibility to do that as humans I think it's very important to care for each other's feelings and be considerate um, but in the state of our country right now I just feel like there's a group that has been super considerate of other people's feelings for a long time and that needs to be reciprocated right now. I think that needs to be not only on a level of I understand you, but on a level of we will protect you because we have the power to do so. So I think everybody who you know wonders what they can do or um, is confused because they probably don't identify with that group, I always tell them, I said, you know, I say you can, you, you all you have to do is feel it. Just pretend, not even pretend, just remember a time where you were so like offended or you just well, felt so you know like an antagonist in a situation and just kind of move that emotion to what's happening today and you'll get an inkling of what people are feeling um, and then use that whatever energy comes out from you use that and, and like you know help people so um, at the end of the day it does not I mean there's uh, the, the black population if we're discussing like racial issues is 10% of this country right Black people, if they collectively all came together, it's 10% of this country, right? A lot of change comes because people collaborate and people reach out to each other. And I think that's just a, a, a part of what we're doing is just reaching out to an audience that, that loves us. But um, when we give them this, these poems and when we give them this, this insight into our life in a creative way, that, that channels a, like, another level of support and empathy, I think. Thank you guys so much. I really just want to thank you. As, you know, you guys are, uh, I'm mostly interviewing people who are like taking time off of jobs or, uh, you know, or working artists. So they're just, you know, bonking around. But you've got an organic chemistry uh, <laughs> test that you're studying for. And I know high school is, is uh, rough going. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, normally at this point in the interview, I ask um, our uh, artists or writers if there's any way uh, that people can find out more about them online. So I don't know if there's any online presence that you'd like to point people toward and or is there any kind of, is there anything that you, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking, is there like any, anything that you think our listeners might be interested in finding that you know about that's online, that's kind of cool, that you would kind of recommend, like a recommendation uh, for somebody to check out? But what I can recommend just for people looking for like pretty inspirational people, Button Poetry is my favorite, favorite YouTube channel right now. And it gives me, it sends me notifications on every time there's a new poem on there. The spoken word platform and how many different issues that you can get at is awesome. So Button Poetry on YouTube, that's awesome. Uh, my teacher has a website up where she uh, can post, where she posts, like uh, she has videos of who and me and, you know, the rest of the students who perform with us. And you can find my work up there uh, alongside bunch of other students who have come through this poetry courses and even some of her writing courses who have wrote you know very powerful pieces um, 
Yeah, well, I'll definitely get the... I'll get a link for both of those and uh, and put those up with, with the episode. So uh, thank you guys so much, and uh, take good care of yourselves. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, you've been listening to me talk to Ricky and Ahmed, and you've been hearing a lot of my voice. So, as we, uh, I'm just really keen to uh, Donald to hear your reflections on uh, on the interview and what what it got you thinking about, just in general, but also um, what echoes you were hearing from things that we were talking about with guests uh, when you're interviewing artists in Thailand. Well, I, I think like first and foremost, it had me thinking about like. Uh the liars and moans that escape the tiny leaves. Um, but also how so much of what they felt mirrors um, what we have felt like. Right. Um, yeah. And they, they were almost like speaking our truth about <laughs> right. living in, in Thailand for those, all those years. Um, it also was interesting. Just, uh, yeah, just the idea of making art under a nationalist frame. You know, mm-hmm. in Thailand, so many times there, there's this thing often called like a foreigner tax, mm-hmm. um, where if I, if a Thai, if, for example, if my wife goes to the doctor, she pays 1,500 baht, but I get charged 5,000 baht. I can, for the first time in my life, imagine an America where that could happen. Oh, geez. Yeah. Where we could be headed to that, a foreigner yeah, tax. Right, um, right. And so this interview made me think of all that. It made me um, think about the power of rhetoric and what it can do. Also, shout out to Miss Highland. Yeah, who, seriously. <laughs> and well engaging done, teachers. <laughs> yeah, you know, standing Ovi. Like, well, well done. Um, just yeah, she's was, doing, she seems like, seems like an amazing teacher and inspiring and, and just getting out there. I mean, like, you yeah. know. And and taking taking these these amazing kids uh, Ahmed and the other performers that he mentioned uh, his classmates down to down to New York City and and creating a space and you know I'm I'm just I mean as a as a teacher of poetry I'm just curious what she's doing in that class because she's doing you yeah know, what's going she's doing, on in she's there? doing some great stuff so yeah yeah we need to see your syllabus Miss Highland yeah indeed Bangkok dot com yeah that's right um, also. There was there was one part in particular that really stood out to me, and again, mirroring current feelings I have. Um, Rakia was talking about how nobody who's ever been a headline thought they they would be a headline. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, of course, being back in the United States, being a young African American male, ah, uh, that's going through my head a lot in this new America, which is not really new. It's it's just a more overt right. America, like a, <laughs> right. um, yeah. I, I've been I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, just recently, I had a chance to go to a conference in D.C. My my speech therapist is actually in North Carolina, so I just I stopped by, saw her, and then kept you know driving on up. And so I I'm in D.C. and I'm there for a conference, and I'm staying at a friend's hotel, and I stayed up kind of late it was about 11 o'clock at night um and my friend was gonna come down and let me to let me come up to their hotel room 
And when I tried to enter the building, uh, the lobby staff stopped me and said, no, you have to wait outside. And I said, okay, fair enough. I don't have a key to this building. That's okay. Can I just stand, you know, between the doors to the lobby? Cause it's really cold outside. Right. Yeah. Um, and they were like, no, you can't, can't do that. <laughs> so uh, I go outside. Come on America. You're being <laughs> so <going> overt. <laughs> yeah. So I go outside and I'm standing there, you know, um, and it's really cold and I got, I got a sweatshirt on, but I don't pull up my hoodie um, uh, yeah. because of the perception of a large African-American male standing in front of a hotel near midnight with a, a hood on. Um, like the idea that being back here, my body becomes an act of aggression almost to others, just right. my existence. Um, and again, that makes me long for Thailand, you know, where I could go wherever the hell I want, yeah. um, and wear whatever the hell I want because I'm a Farang first. Right. Um, I'm, I'm first a foreigner. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so, yeah, yeah. it's kind of strange. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say there like that, that, that truth of like that you feel safer and calmer uh, <laughs> in Thailand, you know, despite Military the fact that regime, like, there, there is like, you know, there is racism in Thailand and yeah. uh, it's not like, you know, people with darker skin, like don't have it, you know, don't have it awesome all the time. Uh, <laughs> but like, you know, that you, that you feel like that palpable r- real difference of a sense of safety and um, has always made me, has always really struck me and made me sad. Mm. Now you're back in <laughs> The country that makes you feel unsafe uh, in your own yeah. body is awful, um, or just awful that you have to experience that fear, heightened <laughs> by the general fear that we're all experiencing now. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, it's compounded. But, but I, I will say I was surprised, and I, I mean, and I guess gladdened how I, I was, or I was, I was struck by how Ahmed and Rakia, uh, or I suppose Ahmed in particular, talked about how he hasn't really experienced that much overt. Uh, racism and yeah. you know that made me feel I mean I don't know I, I guess I'm not quite sure what the emotion is that I that I that I am feeling or should feel like I feel happy for him that he hasn't had to have those experiences <laughs> I was um, very surprised by that uh, but but I found it surprising uh, not because Maine is a super you know like a super super racist state like the the governor is pretty racist uh and not <laughs> not a cool guy but maine is not a very diverse place and again i'm just i'm just sort of, i'm struck by that and and glad for him that he hasn't had that experience it was it was kind of funny because they they've had they seem to have experienced things differently or experienced yeah. things the same way totally yeah. and then had different perspectives on it sure yeah. um which that also just that also I found that super fascinating that two people can view the same incident or move through the similar spaces and then feel and see things completely different. Totally, and that also yeah. is so America. That is also very, That's interesting. very yeah. America. Yeah. This intersectionality, how like all these different labels, different identities that we are can produce these different experiences and produce these different perspectives and then ultimately produce these different personalities these different reactions right. we react differently two siblings both poets different approaches <laughs> different perspectives making similar work you know 
Yeah. That's that's and collaborating. That's very, and collaborating. And collaborating. Yeah. That's yeah. Which very which cool which I loved. I mean I'll me. just say like yeah. I, I may have said it on the interview. I think I said it in the interview how I just love the fact that like they, you know, compose poems together and they but they yeah. they, they, they came to poetry uh, sort of on their own independently though Rikia as the uh, the older sister is clearly, you know, was, was showing them all the uh, the Def Jam poetry uh, yeah. and and spoken word uh, videos. Yeah. Um, but the, but they came cool. to it, and then they're, they're they're doing that collaboration. I just you know I just love that. I think that's just so that's just so cool. And so many echoes to like previous episodes we've had, like some, and I think that was episode was that episode ten? <laughs> so yeah, long nine, ago, nine or ten, uh, yeah. nine or ten, yeah. But some also influenced by Western media and makes art that challenges you know just like just like uh rakia and def jam poetry they they the pair of them also reminded me of che and yo in many ways oh Um, that's interesting yeah one actively more aggressively (laughs) um trying to start conversation in their poems and the other more laid back like ahmed is more laid back and there was there was also he said he he was talking about like having a loss for words you know um just mm. with what is happening and i find myself the longer i stay here f- having the exact same sentiments like yeah that's interesting. Um, yeah sometimes the fear of what could happen and i think he said um it's scary i'm angry i'm sad it's like yeah it's all of that um and this fear of what could happen almost forces you to want to to be quiet um to just stay silent and it really gets in the garden where the cats ate frogs you know i I will say that i was struck by how it's a time of great uncertainty and they're full of uncertainty but they also were quick to articulate that they don't feel in immediate danger or under threat in terms of their person or their or their family their immediate family uh, from the proposed policies um, yeah. of the Trump administration, policies that since the interview actually have been, certain aspects of them have been deemed illegal in the courts. Yeah. We didn't know that at the time. Uh, we didn't know that was going to happen when we were doing the interview. I was really struck by how they talked about how they just, the the executive order and and the, the rhetoric surrounding uh, immigration, how it got them thinking about their opportunity and the opportunity that they yeah. had and what it, it has been like for them to, to make uh, a life in America and to become American and having experienced that what they know has been shut down or, or what is under threat for other people uh, that want to come. And Rakia talked yeah. about how disappointed she is in people not being able to have that empathy and to think right. about for a second, like what it would be like to, um, to uproot yourself and to, to try to enter a, an utterly alien society and navigate all these, these, uh, um, either seemingly or absolutely <laughs> absurd, yes. absurd rules yes. um, yeah, uh, and customs to, to make, to make a life here. I was struck by their big heartedness and their, their mm-hmm. consciousness of what uh, people who, you know, are, will, will have difficulty uh, coming to the U S or not, not be able to come to the U S and, and, and create the kind of life that um, that they, that their family has been able to create. I was just really struck by that. Yeah, by the by the world of by the world of blood and white pins. Yeah, exactly. That's one way of saying it. Mm-hmm. You just did the aphasia thing again. I don't. Again, I don't know when to tell you that you're doing it, but uh, 
I feel like I should be speaking some poetry too. I'm the poet, Donald. Quit, quit getting up in my <laughs> getting up in my business, man. There's not room for two. There's lane. not room for two poets on poet in Bangkok. <laughs> oh yeah, that's not plural. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I don't know why we didn't ever change that. And neither poet. of us are in Bangkok at the moment. That's true. Yeah, we just hope- we just need to like we need to strike through the name. We need to like in the font, <laughs> like in the typeface, just sort of strike through <laughs> it. Like, well, like, we are. Yeah, I'm not writing poems the- now anyway, so you know it's right. like not poet and not Bangkok, just like in, it's just like in. <laughs> we are the podcast formerly known as yeah, Poet in yeah, Bangkok. The podcast. That's, that's what entitled. We'll, we'll be called the podcast. The podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're huge in <laughs> in in Bangor. That's right. Um, whoop whoop. Uh, as you could hear, I had a great time interviewing Rakian Ahmed on a very, very cold day in, in Lewiston, Maine, uh, at Forage, a very happening uh, cafe and restaurant. Um, I want to thank them for taking so much time to talk with me. They're both very hardworking, hardworking uh, young people, and uh, you know, we took a big chunk of their, their afternoon to, to talk about poetry, so I really appreciate that. We'll post a couple of links to uh, some of the things that they have recommended, and uh, you can find those on uh, our web, our website, poetinbangkok.com. Uh, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to uh, hear more about what Donald and I are up to, what we're thinking about here in the U.S., and uh, from afar, what we are uh, we're aware is happening uh, back in Thailand. If you like the podcast, uh, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us to reach new listeners. Um, and if you like what we're doing here and want to support us, please consider going to patreon.com slash poet in Bangkok or follow the link from our website. Uh, you can get yourself a t-shirt with Donald and Colin on Mars, drawn by Kathy McLeod. And for a larger donation, we'll even bring you on the show to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, uh, Somali poetic forms... Uh, immigration order, so I really don't want to talk about that <laughs> shit anymore. Uh, the Harbinger 2, and what is going to happen when uh, Shep actually steps down on uh, earthly soil uh, for the first time in many years. And as always, you know that we love to tweet and talk about the uh, Harbinger missions, uh, so you know, f- follow us on Facebook mm-hmm. for no other reason than just to hear our thoughts as the, uh, <laughs> as the uh, imminent arrival of uh, the Harbinger 2 in March. Uh, it's closer. Um, thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast. Um, in the ant, the sea, and the empty eyes of birds. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who's written to us and supported us on Patreon. We really appreciate it. Um, thanks to those who have said nice things about us online. You're the best. Thanks to Anna and Pete for their support. And to Isotope for the great sound editing software. Um, thanks to Martin Pavlinich and his band Reports for our music. Um, and tell your friends about us, whether they're into um, painting, poetry, immigration reform, um, <laughs> travel, or just quirky podcasts in this era of missions to Mars. Missions to and from Mars. Oh right, that's right. <laughs> Whoa, it's getting real. Can I can I just say I'm nervous? I'm yeah, sorry. we're we're gonna have to we're gonna have to basically just devote an episode. We're gonna have to do like an episode on the landing. We'll have to, uh, you know, find somebody my anxiety's way up. Find somebody to interview at Isaac. One of your one of your weird connections that you that you've made. Is it Joe? Is that his name? Yeah, you gotta, I haven't. You gotta I haven't. figure out where that guy is. 
Yeah, I gotta find. I might like send him an email. Yeah. Send um, <laughs> whether you live in Charleston or Sydney, Moscow or Brisbane, we hope you'll keep listening to what we get up to here on Poet and Bangkok. Okay, guys, we'll see you next time. Be well. Yeah.